What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. So I go from sitting in this hotel room in London, finish up five more gigs at Wembley Arena, all sold out, and then we're going to North America. I'm coming home for the first time in six, nine months. The album is number one. The video for Money for Nothing is number one. The song is number one. I'm coming back in the summer of 85 to the United States, and we are inescapable. Money for Nothing is playing out of every radio, every TV, on every turntable and CD player in the country, if not the entire world. It's mind-blowing. And I come back to the States, and there is just a lineup of interviews, newspaper interviews, and MTV interviews, and all these things focused on me. It was kind of cool. I'm the only American guy in the band. It's staggering for me to think about it now. We did four nights in Boston. We did a run of dates at Radio City Music Hall. And Radio City Music Hall is literally a thousand yards from Rudy's Music Stop on 48th Street, where I was working not seven months before this. And one thing after another, hometowns where family lived, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, PA, were playing small venues at the time for part of the tour because those venues were booked before the album came out and blew up. So while we're playing the Syria Mosque or the Atlanta, the- uh, the Fox in Atlanta Theater, beautiful theaters that hold like maybe 3,000 people, suddenly arenas started to get added in. Boston, we played the Wang Center, which is a, a beautiful theater for a few nights, and then they added the Boston Gardens. And we're playing in this place that's got, you know, jerseys from all of the famous Celtics hanging from it. And the place is packed. And that's the way it was. They were all sold-out shows. And I am just riding this wave of pure joy. There is not one down part of any of this for me. I'm just having a blast. I've got a solo guitar slot in the show. I get to be featured for a minute. If I had written out my dream a few years before this, it wouldn't have even come close to what this was. I wanted to play in a big band. I wanted to be a rock star. But this was like a dream on steroids. Those nights at Radio City, I had so many guests at that time. So it was a real homecoming. And when we added Madison Square Gardens to the tour, Look, I saw the Stones in 1972 in Madison Square Gardens, and that night was a flashpoint for me as a kid. I was 16 years old, just graduating high school, and fully into the Stones, and I'm watching these guys, and I'm thinking, this is exactly what I want to do. And now I'm playing Madison Square Gardens. I can see friends of mine from New York City sitting in seats 
front row, people that I got tickets for. It was just amazing. I couldn't stop smiling. Billy Joel came to play with us. Dave Sanborn came to play with us on sax. I stood on Billy Joel's piano while he was doing the solo for Two Young Lovers. <laughs> Christy Brinkley was backstage. After the show, I come out of the dressing room, and there's Robin Williams and a few other actors that I knew. It was amazing. Absolutely surreal. I think about it now, and even then, it was like I was watching a movie of someone else, as if the camera was three feet behind me and a foot to the left. So I'm watching this other person go through this. In a short amount of time, I played with Eric Clapton, Sting, Pete Townsend, Nils Lofgren. So we barnstormed through the States. We had a short break in the middle of it, and I actually took off from the rest of the band. They went home to England. I went out on Long Island on the ocean and just chilled and tried to get my head around everything that had been happening to me and what it meant for the future. We go to Australia. It was like, and I'm not exaggerating, it was like the Beatles showed up. From the second that we got off the plane, there was newspaper people and photographers following us all around. I mean, all of us ended up in the newspaper almost daily. I decided after all these years, I wanted to learn how to surf, and I had all this time. We were playing for like three weeks in a row in Sydney at the same venue, and it was kind of the same in a lot of the cities that we were going to visit. So we had a lot of time, and... The band did 56 shows in Australia, New Zealand, and Tasmania, of all places. All sold out. I think they said, you know, something like, I don't know, to like 10% or 15% of the population had tickets to see Dire Straits while we were there. We held the record for the longest runs in many of those arenas that we were playing and the crowds were incredible and once again i'm just thinking this is it this is it i am a rock star and this is my life every night for 256 shows we'd be in the dressing room everybody kind of pacing around a little bit we're all dressed in our stage gear getting amped up and you can hear from the dressing room you can hear the music that's being played through the sound system you know kind of warming the crowd up it's not very loud Uh, Steely Dan you know a lot of Mark's favorites a lot of the band's favorites and just to get the vibe the audience kind of settled in and then The tour manager shows up with a flashlight. The stage manager joins him. And they'll come into the dressing room and they'll go, okay, 10 minutes. And the pacing starts a little bit more, a little bit faster. Terry Williams, the drummer's bouncing up and down. I'm just grinning. I can't wait to get out of the dressing room. When it gets to be time, three minutes to go. 
the tour manager and the stage manager walk us out down the hallway and there's tape on the floor guiding us to the stage back through the screens and the scrims and the backstage area and it leads up to the stairway that goes up to the stage and we're all standing around and the crowd is bubbling burbling you know it's just kind of murmurs and there's no real shouting or anything it's just this kind of hum like a thousand thousands and thousands of insects just buzzing and then they douse the house lights And the roar that goes up from the crowd is a physical thing. And it literally lifts you up. Lifts you up those stairs to the stage and pulls you out onto the stage. The guitar roadie drops my green seafoam Schecter over my shoulders. I go bouncing out onto the stage and we kick into right across the river. And from that first note that come out of the keyboard player, Alan Clark's riff. It's a reggae groove. And man, when the beat drops on that first hit and the lights come on, It's like being bathed in the light of a thousand suns. Artists spend their lives hoping to be recognized, hoping to be seen, hoping that their artwork, whatever genre they're working in, is seen and received and accepted. And man, when I hit that stage and those lights went up and the crowd roar happened, I'm grinning from ear to ear, and I know I am seen. It's a remarkable feeling. And it lasts through the entire show. It is such a high and an addictive high that it takes hours after the show to come down. Which is why we end up partying, <laughs> partying like rock stars afterwards and into the wee hours, going to a nightclub afterwards, hanging out. I would, especially in, in Australia, I ended up going and jamming with other bands in town, local bands. Our show would be done by like 11, 11.30. And in each town that I went to, that we were there for multiple days, I worked with the record company reps in those towns to find local bands who were playing in a club that I could go and jam with. My background in New York, you know, I, I ran a jam uh, session for years at Kenny's Castaways on, on Bleecker Street. And I love to just go and, and sit in and play some old rock and roll things and blues and just have fun in a way that I wasn't available to me within straights. And I'm not saying that straights wasn't a blast, but it was a very, very rehearsed, tight show. Every night, pretty much the same. There might be the occasional change of a, of a song. You know, we played the same stuff every night. And it becomes ingrained in you. It becomes muscle memory. And I was able to, after 
really a short period of time, I was able to bounce around on stage and I could watch stuff that was happening in the audience. I mean, the songs were so embedded, you know, I was just playing the tunes, getting my parts, and I would be like, oh, wow. Yes, yes, that girl over there, that girl over there. But I would see fights. I would come back into the dressing room and I would ask the other guys, did you see this? Did you see that? And they were like, no. How do you have time to do that? Because people in the audience don't think you can see them. They really don't. And, And it would blow people's minds when I would like point to them and wave to them. And they would get this look of shock on their face like, whoa. We came back to Sydney to end the tour. They added a whole string of dates, another two weeks. And throughout this whole time, Mark and I have continued our conversations about what's going to happen after the tour is over and what the next steps would be. There was even talk about me recording my own stuff that he would produce. And he (laughs) brought up the idea of me doing a power trio with Omar Hakim and Daryl Jones, who were playing with Sting's band. Daryl's now a member of the Rolling Stones. I knew both those guys in New York, and the idea of doing that was pretty exciting to me. So I filed that away and was like, okay, you know, stuff's going to happen. My life as a rock star is going to continue. So like I said, we get back to Sydney. We end the tour with this huge party. And after that, go back to the hotel, and it's the last night in the morning. I get up, and I've decided that I'm going to stay in Australia for a bit. I have no reason to go back to New York City right away. The band and the road crew are all getting on the tour bus to go to the airport and fly back to the UK and home. There's a lot of hugs, you know. There's a lot of smiles. So as I stood on the steps and waved goodbye... I figured I'm going to hang around here for a few months, enjoy myself, and I'll get a phone call from Mark, and we'll start messing around with some of the projects that he had talked about, whether it was mine or soundtracks or whatever. So after I was done surfing, I got a, actually got a phone call while I was down there from a buddy of mine who was the vice president of artist relations at Columbia Records. It was Columbia at the time not Sony yet. He asked me what the hell I was doing hanging out in Australia. And I told him I was surfing and playing and I was thinking of maybe putting a band together and doing some recording down there. And he was like, nah, 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 nah. You got to come back to the States. You got to come to LA because it's your time now. Everybody, you know, in the States was focused on you. You got a lot of exposure. Let's get you a record deal until Straits goes back out. So I end up moving to LA. I don't know a whole lot of people. I'm hanging out at a bar called uh, On the Rocks, which is on Sunset Strip. It's a little little club. And I'm there hanging out, and I don't hear anything from the Dire Straits office. And I'm kind of looking for work at this point, thinking, okay, I better, better do something. And I got a call from Rod Stewart's band, and there was a few other people. Um, and none of that stuff worked out. And... I find out that Mark is in L.A. and hasn't gotten in touch with me. And I'm thinking, that's pretty weird. And he's working on a, an album. 
for, uh, he's producing an album. And that was one of the things that he was like, oh, when I produce somebody, you know, I'm going to, you got to come in and we'll do guitar synth or something, get you to play on it. And I'm like, okay, that's what I thought. And then we thought it was so weird that he was in town and hadn't gotten in touch. So I kind of track him down. We go out to the bar one night. I take him to the bar that, you know, I'm hanging out in. And he, he starts to kind of diss me. He's like, oh, so you're living in L.A. now. What do you, you know, you're going to be hanging out with Don Henley and the Eagles and all of the Hollywood people. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm thinking, no, man, that's not, that's not what I want to do. I want to play music. You know, I just moved here to surf. And because our mutual friend Bobby convinced me to come back here and start recording some tracks. And he didn't say anything else. He left. A couple nights later, I went to visit him at his hotel room, the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills. I go up to his room, and I've got a tape of some of the demos that I've been working on, a cassette. And I figure I want to play it for him, see what he thinks. See if there is we can move forward with some of the projects that we talked about. Mine being first, first on my list. I play him the tunes, and he doesn't say anything. And I ask him, like, "Well, you know, what's what's going on, man? I mean, what's what's happening?" I said, "You know, we got into some really great, in my opinion, double guitar stuff. We expanded a lot of." the arrangements on the tour of some of the songs that really had a lot of interplay between Mark and I in a way that did not exist before, nor did it exist afterwards. And I was really excited about where that stuff was going. It was pretty interesting and fresh in my mind. And I said to him, I said, Mark, you know, we got into all this kind of cool guitar stuff, and it seemed like we could do something with that. And I I said it could be like Derek and the Dominoes, you know, and have this really fun guitar-centric record. And he didn't look at me, and he just said, that's not what I want to do. And I thought, okay, well, what do you want to do, brother? Because I kind of need to know. I've been hanging out here for several months now, six months by the time, you know, I got back from Australia. I said, I, you know, I don't hear anything. I don't know what's going on. Um, and he said, I don't know yet. I said, okay. I said, well, am I supposed to go back to work at Rudy's? Is that what this is? Is, is that what this is all about? That I'm, that that, what we did was what we did. It's over, and I'm, I'm supposed to go back to work on 48th Street. And he didn't say anything. And I just stood up and said, okay, man, I'll catch you around, and walked out. It's the last time I saw Mark Knopfler. Sometimes when dreams come true, they don't actually match up to the dream you had. 